Morning, everybody. Uh, let me pray. We'll jump on into God's word today. Lord, thanks for the daylight. Thanks for just life itself that we can be here today uh, with our brothers and sisters. Thanks for every person watching from home as well. Uh, we love you. Uh, we want to grow in you. So help us to do that. Uh, you know the situation of everyone watching now or everyone here in person. Uh, you know our burdens and our struggles. So we just bring ourselves to you and say, uh, feed us in your word. Um, bring us up so we can meet you halfway. Uh, speak Holy Spirit in our hearts for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to start out with a very simple but uh, pretty deep question at the same time. And my question uh, for you this morning is, who are you? Who are you? And I don't just mean what's your name, but I mean when you think about yourself and your identity, what is your kind of like shoot from the hip, brass tacks, go-to answer that you might say to someone that lets them know who you are? Uh, might you say something like, well, I'm a veteran, or I'm a mom, or I'm an Alaskan? Uh, it's a simple but very important question to ask because our self-identity shapes our lives and our actions. If you say, brass tacks, one of the things that I am is a veteran. I'm not a veteran, by the way. Thank you to those of you who are. But you might say, well, I'm going to be quick to defend our country when others dishonor it. Uh, if you are uh, a mom, you're going to say, drive to North Pole three times a week to take my kids to archery and gymnastics? You bet I will, and a whole lot more. Or if you're an Alaskan and the weather report's calling for rain just before your camping trip, you're going to say, I'm going to go and have a great time. Or you might even just wear a light sweater when it's 20 below, or even preach in shorts uh, if you're that type of Alaskan. But my point here is uh, our self-identity leads to our empowerment, confidence to act effectively in line with who we think we are. And I'll put up one movie on the screen here for you that's tapped into this idea here about self-identity, and it's the movie called Moana. Maybe you've seen it. This is two pictures of Moana kind of near the end of the movie. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's about a Pacific Island girl. She's a Disney princess, of course. And she has to go on a journey on her boat, defeat a volcano monster, and put a magical stone back in its rightful place. Sounds like a good plot of a movie here. But the theme throughout Moana really is this issue of self-identity. Early on, she's asked the question, well, Moana, who are you? Do you know who you are? Are you the kind of person who stays on an island, or are you the kind who wants to go uh, explore? And she says, well, I'm an explorer. So she starts her journey off to the volcano monster, but at the critical part of the movie, and this is what these two scenes are from, basically, she faces the volcano monster and fails. It's kind of a bad thing. Her friend abandons her. And you can see she's rowing the boat on the left there. She's about to put the oar in the water and turn back home, tail tucked between her legs in shame because she wasn't able to do her quest. And right on the verge of giving up, she's visited by this vision of her grandma who basically asks her this question, Moana, do you know who you are? And then, of course, it's Disney. Uh, so it's this typical Disney song about her self-identity. It's a slow build. And then you get to the point where she's on the right triumphantly ending her song, Come What May, I Know The Way, I Am Moana. Right? My kids are looking forward to that part. 
Uh, but the idea here is she finds out, she knows who she is, and so she's able to turn the boat around, defeat the volcano monster. It's the happy ending, right? But Disney tapped into something that's true as far as it goes, that our sense of self-identity can lead to empowerment, confidence to act in certain situations. Now, granted, this is assuming that our self-identity is in line with reality. Uh, probably many of you have seen this video that's been floating around the internet the last week of I am not a cat, the, the Zoom call. I didn't, I didn't put it up there. If you haven't seen it, Google it, I am not a cat, Zoom. Uh, it does us no good if we lie to ourselves about who we are because we'll be setting ourselves and others up for confusion, hurt, and disappointment. You can't cheat reality. So we need to assess ourselves accurately. And so seeing how important our self-identity is, I want to ask you a very similar question to what Moana was asked. She was asked, do you know who you are? But I want to ask us here today, and those of us at home, do you know who you are in Christ? And the reason I'm focusing on this specific question is that for those of us who are Christians, our identity in Christ is far more important than any other area of lives, our lives that we try to find our identity. And we're going to look at this question, and we're going to see how the Apostle John answers it, uh, because our sense of self-identity is going to lead to some empowerment. Specifically, when we know rightly who we are in Christ, it helps us to live well for him. Uh, life isn't easy, you might have noticed. The Christian walk is not always easy. Uh, we might not have to face a literal volcano monster, but we will have challenges to face in life, big, small, all the time. And to face these things, we need to know clearly and accurately who we are in Jesus. If, we have, if we're going to have the confidence to act effectively in the face of all these different challenges. So again, my question to you is, do you know who you are in Christ? Uh, if you got your Bibles with you, uh, we'll go ahead and open them up here. We're going to be in the uh, epistle of 1 John, 1 John near the end of the Bible. And we're going to be in chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. And we'll be in verse 12. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. And as you're flipping over there, uh, I want to say uh, we're going to read the entire passage here because it's only three verses long. No, I'm not making this up. Um, so it's a very important three verses, though, here. And as the Apostle John is writing to this church, he's writing to a troubled church that he finds is a bit brokenhearted. And what he has to say here is supposed to be a bit of encouragement for them. So let's read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Apostle John says to this church, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That's it. That's the whole passage. Hard to believe, huh? Three verses. And if you're like me, maybe you've read by this passage in the, in the past and said, whoa, this is kind of an odd little cluster of verses here. It doesn't seem like there's very much going on. John is very repetitive. But these three verses are going to spell out the answer to our question, do you know who you are in Christ? And that's a very important question for John's readers, the ones who are reading this letter, and for us too. 
Now, the context uh, of 1 John here, if you remember, John's an apostle. He's an older man at this point in his life, and he's writing to a troubled church. Church was troubled, uh, to put it in real simple terms, because of a church split. There's a group of folks uh, who are part of that church that started having some really wrong views about Jesus, heretical views. And those wrong views about Christ led to some uh, wrong actions, some wrong practices where they just dove headlong into sin, totally unrepentant about it. And John is writing to this group of Christians who are left behind after these other folks have moved out. And throughout the first chapter and a half here, he's been drawing this line in the sand for the people reading here. He's been saying, well, we walk in the light, but they walk in darkness. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us, but they say they don't even have any sins. We obey God's commands, they don't. We love our brothers and sisters, they don't. So it's this dividing line. It's the us versus them here. And in this passage that we just read, we have kind of a summary of everything that has come so far for John. And he's basically saying, be encouraged, guys. You're on the right side of this dividing line. And we're also going to see that what he's teaching here is a setup for where he's going to go next in the letter. We'll talk about that next week. But he's got a big ask he's about to lay down. So this is a bit of a bridge passage. On one hand, it summarizes what's already come. You're on the right side. But it's preparing them for action, which is what's coming next week here. And before we go into the specifics of do you know who you are in Christ, let's just make some broad observations about these three verses here. Um, First off, depending on which translation you have in front of you there, your verses are probably set apart. Uh, Maybe italicized, they could be indented. Uh, I think most of the English translations do this. And what's going on there is the, the Bible translators have seen that it's a very highly structured, very repetitive section of his letter. And they say, he's doing something like poetry here. So it's a way that John is drawing attention to what he's saying here. Now, on top of that, um, uh, you notice that John addresses, seems to address these three groups of people, little children, young men, fathers, and then he does it more than once. Uh, we'll talk about those groups in a minute, but my point I want to say here is that it's, he uses a lot of repetition. He mentions the same groups, he mentions the same things more than one time, and as we've heard from here before, When we see repetition in scripture, that's the volume knob. It turns up the volume. So again, it's another way of him saying, pay attention to what I'm saying. Third kind of general observation uh, is that John uses a lot of relational terms here. Uh, In the first few chapters, he's not using these relational terms so much, but now he refers to the little children, the fathers, the young men. And uh, it's his way of kind of drawing close to the people he's writing to. He's not talking to them like they're way over there. He's kind of like grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, pay attention to what I'm saying. But notice that it's emphasis upon emphasis upon emphasis. The specific structure with repetition, with a kind of draw you close kind of terms. And uh, one commentator, I think this is funny, said this, is, this passage is the literary equivalent of hitting a mule between the eyes with a two by four. I like that. I don't know, just caught my attention too. It's like hitting a mule between the eyes with a two by four. He's trying to be that obvious with his people. Hello? Anyone home? Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's his way of being super duper emphatic. Uh, these three verses are short, but very important. Uh, and then we need to pay attention. Okay, so let's talk about these three groups he's writing to. The children, 
young men and old men. Is it three groups? Well, really what I think we're going to see is he's addressing the whole church. So it's really one group, uh, and he breaks it up into the older and the younger. Uh, how do I get there? Um, when he says uh, the terms children, or depending on your translation, it might say dear children, this is his kind of go-to expression he refers to the entire church throughout the letter. Uh, it's a pretty short letter, but I think it's like I have, I have seven or eight verses listed here where he refers to the whole church as my children, my dear children, my little children, something like that. So it's this kind of go-to of saying, hey, y'all, uh, listen up, right? And uh, when he breaks this larger group of the whole church into the fathers and the uh, young men, he's probably not really talking about spiritual maturity so much, but just age in general. And the reason we know that is there's overlap in what he says to these two different groups. There's repetition. And everything he says to one group is really going to apply to the other group as well. And that's interesting too, because he doesn't uh, mention women specifically here. He doesn't say mothers and young women but the idea here is he's addressing the whole church. So whether you're young or old, male or female, he's including all of us in his address here. And uh, he's focusing all of this emphasis, he's aiming that two by four right on our identity in Christ. There's so much emphasis here. Don't you know who you are in Christ? And again, he's doing this because of this church split that he's been talking about. This is what they're like. This is what we're like. But good news, everybody, is what he's saying. Don't you know you're on this side of it? You're on this side, and that's a good thing. So at this point in the letter, if anyone had been having questions, well, am I walking in the light or am I not? This is his way of encouraging them and saying, you're on the right side. Breathe the sigh of relief. It's very encouraging them. And again, uh, this is to just solidify who he's talking to, but also setting them up for action, this big ask of what he's going to go, and we'll talk about that next week. But he's looking to empower them to do something based on who they are in Christ. So those are the broad observations. Let's look more specifically now. Who are you in Christ? First point, um, pretty straightforward here. If you are a Christian, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Easy to say, Hard to take in our hearts sometimes, right? Let's read uh, chapter 2, verse 12 again. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Okay, again, uh, the little children here, it's his way of referring to all of them, all y'all. And this forgiveness is this most foundational thing for us as Christians. Our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Whose name? He's talking about Jesus here. Because of Jesus. And why are we forgiven? Because Jesus died on a cross as our substitute, and he rose again from the dead. And he died as our substitute to pay the penalty for all the wrong stuff we've ever done and could ever do, all the thoughts that we could have against God, and he's forgiven us. We're not forgiven uh, because we've done more good than bad ourselves. We're not forgiven because we're really, really sorry. We're not forgiven because we try really hard and try to be nice no, we are forgiven for his name's sake. He's our substitute. And I'm assuming most of us here probably know how you become a Christian, but there might be some who don't. And so I just want to say, this is how you become a Christian if you're not one already, is you go to God and say, God, I'm sorry for going my own way, trying to live as my own boss. I want to turn around and let you be my boss. 
and I'm going to trust in what Jesus has done to pay for my sins as my substitute. Uh, one writer I like, his name is Mike Fabares. He said, you stop trusting in your own spiritual resume. I just like that. Stop trusting in your own spiritual resume before God, and you put your confidence in Jesus alone as the provision for our sinful condition. Now, uh, I think we do need to let it sink in, though. What does it really mean that our sins are forgiven? Uh, simply put, it means that we have a clean record before God. Uh, forgiveness, it's a relational thing, right? If you have an argument with your spouse or with a friend, uh, there's tension there, or you could have a broken relationship. But when there's forgiveness, the relationship is restored. Uh, things are good again uh, for communication and all the rest. Uh, one verse I like from Hebrew, it's in the book of Hebrews, and the writer there says uh, about this forgiveness and this relationship with God. He says, in him, in Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We're forgiven because of what Jesus has done, and we have this beautiful, open relationship with God. Now, I do want to address this too, uh, and that's the question, well, someone here might say, well, Adam, I don't really feel forgiven. Uh, I know what scripture says, or I've heard what it says, but I don't really feel forgiven. And uh, if that's happened to you, I'd say it's probably happened to a lot of us at some point in our Christian walk. Uh, if you feel that way, why? Uh, is it because of the, the, the size of a certain sin? Is it because of the, the frequency of sins over so many years? Is it the re how recent it's been? Uh, well, if that's your struggle, I want to give just three quick tips um, if you don't feel the forgiveness of God. Uh, first tip for you, if that's you, and I've been there myself at various points, is just to familiarize with scriptures that deal with God's forgiveness. It can be ones as simple as John 3.16, but strung throughout the Bible, we see pictures of God forgiving different individuals. And this is a good thing to do, especially if you struggle with feeling, if you struggle like feeling like I've committed too big of a sin. Murder is a pretty big sin, and yet, did you know Moses was a murderer, uh, as was King David and others, and yet they were forgiven. Adultery is a pretty big sin, but again, David fell into this one, and the woman at the well, and others, and they were forgiven. So first one is just familiarize with passages about God's forgiveness of sin. Second tip, if uh, you're having a hard time feeling God's forgiveness, and this is maybe even a more powerful one, is to, to focus on those parts of the Bible that talk about uh, Jesus dealing with sinners. Again, I think of uh, stories like the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, Peter, when he denied Jesus three times, when Jesus needed him the most, uh, greedy little Zacchaeus. And the reason why I say focus on these passages specifically with Jesus is because of what uh, Jesus says in John's gospel. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father's heart is like, look at how Jesus treats other people. And, uh, and then after you dwell on those passages a little bit, think, well, how would he act? How would Jesus act if he were here in the room with me and he knew my sin? Would he push me aside or would he engage with me? I think he'd engage with each one of us uh, and very warmly. He wouldn't dodge our sin, but he would love us. And the third tip, last one here is once you've done you're filling up on scripture, looking at how Jesus treats sinners. We need to simply live in the truth of God's word and what it says and not live by our feelings. 
And I know, easier said than done sometimes, right? We want to live by our feelings, right? My daughter Kate and I had a discussion in another Disney movie about Inside Out. Maybe you know this one, but it's, uh, we, were, we were both talking, and you know, Kate's only 12. We're saying, well, we don't really like it because it seems like the, the girl in the movie is this robot just controlled by her emotions all the time, and that's it. Our emotions are important, but they uh, don't have to control us. They aren't the sum of who we are. And sometimes we just got to look at God's word and go, I am forgiven, and uh, Lord, help me to feel that way and live in light of the truth of that. Scripture clearly says we are forgiven. This is part of who we are in Christ, and it should be a great encouragement for us. And since we are forgiven, uh, we're talking about being empowered to act, right? Well, we need to say, since we see ourselves as forgiven, how does that apply to our lives? Where's the application? Two things that I thought of here. Uh, First, I think that uh, having this identity as someone who's forgiven should help us to show compassion to other people. And uh, that can be hard to do. I have a hard time with it at times because I want to say, you know what, I'm right, they're wrong, and this is why. I think we all probably do that. But when we see ourselves as someone who is forgiven by Jesus, we realize that although they may be wrong and they might have sin issues, um, that we've got our own baggage, we've got our own issues, we've got our own sin too, and God accepts us. And that should nudge our hearts, I think, a little bit. And you make us a little bit slower to jump on them. Yes, they are not perfect, but then again, neither are we. And really, I think that that kind of grows and expands into the second application, which is just being ready to forgive other people. Uh, It's an obvious application. Even in the Lord's Prayer, he says, uh, we're supposed to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. This is part of our daily bread and butter as Christians, as we know we're forgiven and we extend forgiveness to others. Uh, I will acknowledge, though, um, you know, that assumes that you have someone who's ready to reconcile and restore relationship. That's not always the case. I mean, it says in Romans 12, 18, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You can't force another person to reconcile with you. Um, but what you can do is be ready to see them with eyes of mercy and extend forgiveness to them and ask for it if that's what's needed. Our self-identity, our true identity, uh, is that we are people who have been forgiven, and that should empower us for action, action to have compassion, action to forgive. Do you know who you are in Christ? You're forgiven. Uh, Remember, this is encouraging, so you guys should all be smiling right now, right? Second thing, if you are a Christian, you know God. You're a God-knower, if I can put it that way. Uh, Let's read verse 13 again. John says to this church, he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. Skip to the end of verse 13. I write you, your children, because you know the Father. Beginning of verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. If you are a Christian, you know God. And this is the point that John really repeats the most in these three verses. He says it three times here. When you think about it, this is really his big encouragement to this brokenhearted church. He's saying, yeah, you've gone through a church split. People have had wrong beliefs about Jesus. They've had wrong actions. But I want to tell you something. You're on the right side of this equation. You are people who know God. You're in the light. So be encouraged. You're a God-knower. 
And it doesn't just mean that we know about God, like you might know details about a celebrity that lives way far away. But knowing God means that we have this personal, real, vital uh, connection with the maker of the universe. And that's pretty cool. I mean, we could just kind of sit on that and bring it home with us. We know the maker of the universe. Pretty cool. And no one can take that relationship away from you. We are his. We are kids he's adopted. And we are redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus. I'll say that by extension, uh, we are not just God-knowers, but there's others as well. So we're part of a family of other God-knowers. So even if you have no family, know this. You have family in Christ. And even if you're at a place where you feel like, man, I've got no one in my life, you've got the most important one. And a bunch of the rest of us thrown in for good measure. So might as well have a big party next Thanksgiving, invite a million people over, that kind of thing here. We're part of a family of God knowers, people who know him. And uh, when I think applications, man, uh, I just chose two because there could be a lot of applications from being someone who knows God. So I'll just give you two that came to my mind. First application, this is our identity, equipping us for action. As a God-knower, I think we need to cultivate that real relationship with God, specifically by spending time in our prayer lives. Now, uh, you know I love scripture reading. I'm always quick to promote that. But I I really want to emphasize uh, our prayer lives and even our private worship lives, too. Because I think that there can be sometimes an element in reading scripture where God does seem distant, like we're just doing homework or reading about him. Uh, But when we pray or when we worship, it reminds us of how real and vital our relationship with the maker of the universe is. Um, Two kind of passages I've been reading lately about prayer. Uh, One is from David and King David in Psalms, and one is from 1 Samuel Hannah. If you remember her story, she was praying for a baby. And it says for both David and Hannah that they poured out their hearts to God. And I thought, boy, that doesn't look like my prayer life a whole lot. But it needs to be once in a while. That's not the only way we pray. But we can pour out our hearts before the maker of the universe. He knows us. He cares for us. We can cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. And prayer, I think specifically, and worship, remind us of that in a way that even scripture reading... uh, might have the temptation of being further off. So that's the first application. Uh, Give time in prayer. Pour out your heart. Second application, as a God-knower, I think that we can fearlessly live for an audience of one. And this is what I mean by that. Uh, Since we're God-knowers, that doesn't sound weird. It sounds good in my ear. Um, But since our primary and most important relationship is with the maker of the universe, we don't need to live as people pleasers out here. We don't need to be afraid of what others are going to think about us. We need to care about what God thinks about us and how we live before him. So what I'm saying here, I'm giving us all permission to be a little bit of an odd duck, uh, to swim upstream as far as the world goes. And actually... That's where John's going to go next in this letter. We'll pick up with that next week. And as a Christian uh, in the 21st century cancel culture, I think it can be easy sometimes to feel like a little bit of an odd duck, uh, like we're just kind of out there and weird. But because we're knowers of God, we can live securely in that relationship with him 
and have the courage to do the right thing, to say the right thing for him, even when it costs us in the eyes of the world. It's an audience of one. And again, those are just two quick applications. You could probably just sit on this one thought that we are knowers of God and come up with a lot more. But uh, for time, let's just move on here. Last point, do you know who you are in Christ? You are forgiven. I expect to see smiles on each of these points, right? These are good things. We're God-knowers and you have overcome the evil one. Let's look at verse 12 again. John writes to this church, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He repeats something similar in verse 14, changes it a little bit. He says, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Okay, who's the evil one? Okay, the evil one is Satan, the devil, if you want to put it that way. And overcome is to have victory here. So he's saying in this grand cosmic struggle between good and evil, between Satan and God here, uh, not only has God won, not only is God is good won, but you have won because you're siding with him. And uh, the way that the verb is put here, it says you have overcome. He doesn't say, add a boy, add a girl, someday you will overcome Satan. He doesn't say you might overcome if you do this, 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 and this. He says you have overcome the evil one. It's a done deal. Uh, in Greek, it's called the perfect tense. It refers to a state of being, uh, which is a fancy way of saying it's this continuance of an act that has been completed. So I like to think of it like a pie-baking contest. You won the pie-baking contest, right? You won it in the past, but you carry on that victory uh, in the present. You can proudly wear your blue ribbon around the fairgrounds all day if you like. It's something that happened in the past that continues on. And in this case, it's not pie-baking. It's referring to this past-completed act of victory over Satan that has a continued state even now. Um, now, he addresses this to young men, so he raises the question, well, hey, wait a minute. When did these young guys overcome Satan? That sounds like a pretty hard battle there. Uh, and he didn't say you might do it or you, you could do it. He says you have done it here. Uh, you might attribute this more to maybe a really mature believer who does everything right or something like that. And the answer, and this is why it applies to all of us here, is that they've overcome the evil one not by themselves, but by the virtue of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. They've professed their faith in Jesus, and because of that, God lives in them, and he shares that victory with them and with us. Jesus definitively won the war, uh, but we and they get to share in the prize, and that's a good thing. Now, the second time John repeats this truth about overcoming the, having overcome the evil one, he adds a little bit more. He says in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Well, wait a second here. If they are strong because on the basis of Jesus's victory, uh, why would he say you are strong and the word of God abides in you? I think it relates to this phrase, word of God, that he's talking about here. Word of God, it's, I don't think he's referring to just a bunch of Bible verses that they might have memorized at Awana, as useful as that can be. What he's talking about here is they have the right confession about who Jesus is. Jesus himself embodies this perfect love for the Father, perfect love for other people. 
And John is saying, you got the right message about Christ and you've internalized it. It is sunk in. It is shaping your lives. And because you have this blueprint, the seed abiding in you, you are strong, not in your own strength, but in this victory that has already been won by Jesus. And that's a reality check for us too. What does it mean that we have overcome the evil one? That's the exact same thing here. We're in this state of victory over Satan because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So in our own struggle with sin, ultimately it's not us just trying harder, but it's us resting on what he has already done on the cross. And where's this great cosmic struggle going between good and evil? There's no doubt of the final outcome. It is a done deal. And if we're in Christ, we're on the right side of that equation. And again, if we have a hard time feeling it, feeling like we've overcome Satan, we have to remember this is by virtue of what Jesus has done, not by our own strength. So real quickly, what's the application for us knowing that we are overcomers of the evil one? I think really the application is that we can face our challenges in life, our struggles with sin, our volcano monsters, uh, if you want to put it that way. We can face these challenges with peace and with bravery. I mean, think about it. If you know that come what may, in the end, that Jesus has already won the victory over Satan and over sin, you can keep cool-headed in the heat of the moment. And you know that setbacks, whether in your personal life or whether in the world, are only setbacks. No matter what craziness happens in 2021 or 2022 uh, or any year thereafter, Jesus has said things like, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or one of my favorite Proverbs, um, Proverbs 21.30 says, there's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. God's got this. It's a done deal. And that doesn't mean there will be no turbulence or trouble along the way. There'll be both. Uh, We know that from scripture as well. But the story, the end has already been written. And because of that, we can have a certain amount of peace and a certain amount of bravery as we lean on his strength in victory. So, uh, do you know who you are in Christ? You're more than your career. You're more than your position in your family. You are more than your political leaning or your nationality or your age or your sex or your race or all these other things that we might lean on for our identity. Our identity in Christ is the most important part of who we are And if we are a Christian, then we need to really dwell on these things and let the Apostle John lovingly get our attention with that two by four uh, across the head and let it sink in. Do you know who you are? You are forgiven. Let it sink in. You know God and you have overcome the evil one by his victory, not our own. Think about who you really are and don't give up. Let that right assessment of our identity give you power to face life and the courage, the things that will come our way. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you're so good to us. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for life. Thanks for salvation. But thank you that um, we can have rest in you. We can have forgiveness in our restored relationship with the Father because of you. Uh, Let these truths really sink in. I just pray for people who are struggling with the feels Uh, that you'd uh, get through their hearts. Uh, 
and we're all there from time to time. Soften up our hearts so that we can really know who you are and that it applies to us, not just to other people, not just to quote-unquote good Christians, but to us. Uh, we all need you. Uh, so thank you for being who you are and loving us. In Jesus' name.